0: I'm Father Alan, and this is Behind the Spine. And I'm your host, Mark Haywood. This is the podcast that finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. It represents a very symbolic moment in our history. Over the course of the last three series of this show, I've met dozens of fascinating people and uncovered a whole host of interesting lessons that have inspired my writing and hopefully yours too. But there's one thing I wasn't prepared for – I knew the show would make me a better listener and perhaps even a more considered reader but I wasn't expecting to slow down as much as I have. I've become more aware, more aware of my surroundings, more aware of my personal impact on them. I've started to notice things that normally I'd walk right by. Two conversations in particular stand out. Firstly, Lara Makeland, when she talked about how, when you first go mudlarking, it can be hard to see anything of value on the foreshore. But the more you train yourself to look, the more you can see. And second, Tom Chivers, where we talked about how he's trained his eye to look for the telltale signs of an underground river. So for today's episode, I'm leaving the comfort of the studio and heading out on foot. Not to the foreshore of the River Thames, and certainly not deep underground. Actually, I'm just popping round the corner. Chapter 1. Cable Street You could live your life in London and never hear of Cable Street, let alone take a walk down it. The street runs from Whitechapel on the edge of the City of London through Shadwell to Butcher Row in Limehouse. If you take the DLR from Tower Gateway, you'll run directly overhead. Its name like so many place names, comes from its earliest use. Cable Street was originally where hemp, a plant from the same species as cannabis, was used to make rope for the ships that docked in the Pool of London. Over time it developed something of a reputation. If booze, whores and opioids were your thing, then Cable Street was just the place for you. It's where Sir Arthur Conan Doyle carried out research for Sherlock Holmes. It's where Oscar Wilde, Well, whatever Oscar was doing on Cable Street was his business. It was also, rather gruesomely, the sight of the very last time a criminal was laid to rest with a stake hammered through their heart. The criminal in question, John Williams, had been arrested as a suspect in the infamous Ratcliffe Highway Murders in 1811, which claimed the lives of seven people. Williams then took his own life in his cell before he could stand trial. A stake through the heart was justified by the notion that suicide was sinful. Cable Street's reputation as an opium fueled den of iniquity is probably sufficient to have secured its place in history, but I'm not heading out on foot for that. I'm going on location because 85 years ago last month, in October 1936, it was the scene of a truly remarkable piece of civil disobedience. Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Over the course of the show, we've uncovered dozens of lessons that have been extracted from over 50 fascinating conversations. We've picked three. Well, we'd like you to narrow this down to one. Pick one of the lessons we've selected and write a short story of no more than a thousand words and send it to us. At the end of the series, we'll pick two winners. We'll pay each writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of series four. Go to behindthespine.co.uk and click on Writing Competition for more details. But now, back to the show. Chapter 2. I'm standing just off Cable Street by the west wall of St George's Town Hall, looking at this astonishing mural that depicts the Battle of Cable Street, and it's absolutely extraordinary. It covers pretty much the entire wall. It must be, I don't know, 20 metres high? 20 metres across, maybe. It's absolutely staggering. It should be in a gallery, but then I guess, in a way, it is. Let me give you some context. By the 1930s, the Jewish community in the East End of London was comprised of many families who had fled anti-Semitism in other countries. There were approximately 180,000 Jews in London. Most flocked to the East End because rents were cheaper. A third of London's Jews set up home in St George's in Stepney, which according to the 1931 census had a population density over a dozen times higher than outer boroughs. Life was extremely tough with high unemployment and low, if any, wages. Anti Semitism had been building in London since the turn of the century, and when the Great Depression took hold in the 1930s, many blamed the Jewish community for worsening conditions. In late September 1936, posters went up all around London. The leader of the British Union of Fascists, Sir Oswald Mosley, and thousands of his followers, known as Blackshirts, intended to march through London, a very specific part of London, Stepney an obvious and deeply troubling attempt at provocation. The Spanish Civil War was in its infancy, and the whiff of fascism from across Europe was becoming a stench here in London. Local religious and community groups lobbied the government to ban the march. The Home Secretary, John Simon, refused, and ordered thousands of police officers to provide protection for Mosley and his one-armed raised saluting fascist followers. John Simon sent thousands of police East London sent hundreds of thousands of their own kind, mainly Jewish and Irish, all standing shoulder to shoulder. This wasn't East London versus Mosley. This was East London saying no to fascism. Mosley and his black shirts were heavily outnumbered. The police tried to intervene and attempted to clear a route through Cable Street. That's when the battle started, Irish dockers and railway workers helped their Jewish neighbours to erect barricades. Between them, they ripped up paving stones and hurled rocks and bricks at the black shirts. From the tenement buildings on either side, the police were subjected to a barrage of bottles and chamber pots, contents included. They retreated and told Mosley to do the same. Two months later, in December, the Public Order Act was passed. Never again would political uniforms be allowed at public gatherings. So appalled at the failure of the march, Mussolini would soon after cancel the financial subsidy he gave to the British Union of Fascists. Without operating costs, the union then collapsed. Mosley turned his allegiances towards Hitler, an act that proved deeply unpopular across the country and led to Mosley's eventual arrest. The mural on the west wall of St. George's Town Hall was commissioned to commemorate the events of 1936 the work was started in 1976 by artist Dave Binnington, whose designs were partly inspired by the famous Mexican mural artists David Alfaro Siqueiros and Diego Rivera. There were setbacks with several acts of vandalism on the work in progress, and Dave was unable to complete the project. The work was taken up by artists Paul Butler, Ray Walker and Desmond Rochford, who brought their own skills, designs and ideas to the project, while achieving a stylistic unity. The mural was finally completed in 1983. Oh, here we are. The finished work measures approximately 17 by 18 meters and has become an important pictorial document with both historic and artistic significance. This epic mural serves to remind us of what can be achieved when communities join together against those who seek to divide them. That rustling you can probably hear is a, a bunch of flowers that have long been past their best, wrapped in plastic. There is a framed photograph of a man named William Alexander, 1910 to 2000, who I assume was here on the day in 1936. There's a fight racism poster which says, imperialism, corporatism, globalization, neoliberalism, austerity, symbols of the decaying nature of capitalism. This got me thinking. What would it take to make me adopt this sort of action? What issue or cause do I care most deeply about? What makes me angry? Or am I naturally apathetic because I've never really faced anything approaching the level of opposition that Mosley and his followers put up? Is there anything that would bring me out into the street in such a manner? At first, I was worried that the answer was no, that there was nothing so important to me that would prompt action. And then I saw something fascinating, something left behind by a recent school trip to the mural earlier this month. And there's also two signs that talk about a group of school children who came here recently. It says, protest then, protest now. Has it changed? Is it the same? Young people of Tower Hamlets learnt about the history of our area during creative workshops and discussed the Battle of Cable Street 85 years ago. We discussed What would you stand in the street and say no to? And there's a collection of their their answers. It reads racism, sexism, Palestine, homework, rent hikes, homophobia, social cleansing, unequal or unfair treatment of women, school uniform, war, pollution, gentrification, bullying, fascism, abuse, football, hooligans, racism in sport, travel costs, lack of children's rights, and an outdated educational curriculum. Wow. It says 12... 11 to 16 year olds attended a series of workshops with stitches in time to explore the rich cultural history surrounding the battle of cable street while generating individual responses to the mural we began with discussions around the events surrounding the battle of cable street and what the principles and views were behind both the institutions and collectives that existed on both sides we looked at varieties of protest creative impactful and unconventional ways in which artists and protesters of historically and recently communicated ideas and messages. These examples included climate activism, Black Lives Matter, the suffragettes, Banksy, trade union banners and craftivists. We questioned each other and it says again, what would we stand up for today? What would we stand up in the street and shout no to? What would happen if we couldn't say these things and speak out against injustice? What does it mean for these actions to be human rights as codified by the United Nations? We visited the Whitechapel Gallery in Brick Lane, observed protest art and graffiti, social and political expression on Brick Lane. We experimented with form, media and colour, collage and text, testing and exploring various methods of our own to communicate our messages of equality and anti-racism. We concluded, even 85 years later, it seems that we, the young people of Tower Hamlets, would stand in the street and say no to many of the same things as those who so bravely stood before us. In learning to live with one another in the school, of learning to appreciate the different cultures, traditions and faiths that are there, there is a real sense amongst those those young children about the need to be able to live together in peace and respecting one another. Chapter 3. Soundscape. For just a few moments we're going to listen to some of the sounds you may have heard on the day of the battle, as people marched through the streets, barricades were raised, police horses galloped, and people yelled in anger and in unity. conclusion the mural is stunning breathtaking in fact it comes out of nowhere and deserves to be on every list of must do things in london but i also like the fact that it stands quietly and defiantly where it does not seeking the limelight happy just to fascinate you whenever you find the time to visit reading the conclusions of the school children was very uplifting the list of things they would stand in the street and say no to well it's no shortlist You could be forgiven for thinking that the world is in a terrible state if the list of things to oppose is so long. But this is the list of schoolchildren who represent the future. I wish I had their zeal. Good luck to them. We need them to succeed. Cable Street has had a fascinating history. Open your eyes to the world around you. Walk down a different street and it's fascinating what you can discover. From opioid dens, brothels and bars to large-scale civil disobedience. Think about the people who protested that day. What made them, to quote the schoolchildren, stand in the street and say no? What could that mean for your characters? What drives them? What makes them angry? If you want to dive into this world as it was just after the Second World War, then look no further than Joe Bloom's novel, Ridley Road, it's been adapted for television and is described by the BBC as Swinging Sixties London, as you've never seen it. A young Jewish woman is drawn into a world of deceit and lies in a high-stakes fight against the far right. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info@behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Next week, we're sticking with Cable Street and delving into its more modern history with the chair of the local interfaith forum, Father Alan Green. In the meantime, give us a like and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.